Hello and welcome to The Biosocial Researcher, a new podcast about the ways our social world interacts with our biology. My name is Emma Walker and I'm a PhD student at UCL and in each episode I'll be talking to a biosocial researcher about their work. On today's episode, we have Charlotte Louise Campbell, um, and she is a social epidemiologist. I guess I am, yeah. <laughs> and she's going to be talking to us about her research on inflammation, social isolation, and health in older age. Amazing. So, if you were to briefly describe your PhD, briefly, I mean, I could go on for a while. <laughs> I'll try and keep it brief. So, so I'm looking at the effect of being sort of socially isolated on health over time in older people, so people who are aged 60 and over, and also whether this biological process of chronic inflammation is bringing that impact of being isolated kind of into someone's body, so we can measure sort of the biological impact. Okay. If that makes sense. So inflammation as the kind of the way in which isolation brings about poor health. Is it like the link between the two? Mm-hmm. Is how that inflammation is like getting under the skin? Yeah, which is something we throw around a lot, isn't it? The idea of like getting under the skin, becoming embodied or... I think it's the easiest sort of way to visualise that process. Like it is, it's like getting into the body somehow, you know? We, <laughs> you don't think of these social things as really, you kind of keep social and biological process is quite separate I think in our minds and how we think about like the world and what's going on but there is some sort of link going on and somehow these things are influencing like in our bodies which is quite weird but really interesting. I think it's easy to think about the ways that biological entities like say like with Covid at the moment can get into the body but I find it interesting that we have those same responses to a lot of social stimuli like exactly like you talk about like isolation and loneliness really do impact us in similar ways because they're, they're still stress responses. Yeah yeah I really like when people go back to like the core reason why that could happen you know it's that human like being social we're like a social creature and it's really interesting that we have built into our system like this threat alert stress system that is triggered when we're alone too much because you know nowadays we're quite removed from like the more animalistic side of being a human maybe it's still happening underneath it's really really cool i read loneliness to be uncomfortable and unpleasant and important because it's like a trigger to get us to go and socialize i was like that makes so much sense because otherwise it's like why is this so bad for us but it's like your body going go and find people it's really important for your survival that you're not on your own yeah yeah it does make sense when you think about it but you're like kind of on the surface you're like, why is this so bad? <laughs> One of the interesting things with all kind of biosocial research, I think, wow, that these things do have such an impact biologically. So what yeah, really outcomes do you look at in older people? So this is, I guess, kind of a more interesting part of my project. And it's the bit I've been like stuck on for quite a long time is how to measure healthy ageing. But that is a whole field in itself health means different things to so many different people and there's so many approaches you could take to it so you could ask older people what they value or what they think health is and you'll get different answers to what doctors will say or like a biomedical perspective would take so I'm sort of taking a more biomedical perspective so I'm measuring sort of physical function um, but also cognitive function mental health and well-being 
to capture someone's capability in doing things as opposed to someone's deficits. So that's all about trying to reframe the whole healthy aging debate as get a bit more positive because it's, you know, it's quite a negative thing. You always hear how old people are just really frail and rubbish and you want to like be promoting yeah capability and good things that people sort of can keep and you want to encourage the maintenance of that as opposed to sort of ticking off like when things go wrong and just waiting for that to happen and also I'm not measuring like disability kind of directly or like health conditions that older people might have because we know that health conditions get more common in older age but we also know that they're not necessarily the most important thing especially if you ask older people it's not always the thing that they're that concerned about um, unless it's affecting their function it's more about function and capability so I'm trying to measure health all the things that allow these people to live the life that they want to live have a fulfilling life in spite of any health conditions they might have because you know you can have a health condition and be living your life to the fullest it really doesn't have to kind of impact your like function so what is the evidence sort of linking the inflammation to these outcomes and the kind of isolation that properly kind of biosocial pathway so for inflammation it's quite a mixed bag of evidence so i think a lot of biosocial research uses inflammation and it's like the key sort of biomarker that comes up i think probably as well because it's measured in lots of studies and it does seem to be involved with lots of things but the evidence with it sort of as the link between isolation and health some studies find a link some find a link but it's not very strong others find sort of nothing it's quite hard to pinpoint as well because of there's like things like timing like longitudinal versus cross-sectional data and kind of method I guess concerns but there's a fair amount of evidence for like certain paths between isolation and health particularly things like cardiovascular disease those who are isolated have a higher chance of getting cardiovascular disease or, or even death. Yeah, there's less on the inflammation as the link type yeah. thing and, and sort of less as well using health as an overall kind of multidimensional measure of health. Yeah, because it sounds intuitive. Lonely or isolated, all the people have higher levels of inflammation and are therefore less likely to have healthy ageing. But actually, when you think about it, there's so many complex pathways going on in between all of these things because as you yeah. say isolation I imagine is probably socially patterned too. yeah yeah as is inflammation as is health outcomes and I think so much of the time these sort of biosocial PhDs are about trying to disentangle so many of those really complex pathways yeah definitely part of it and I think that's the real challenge I imagine you get this a lot when I talk about my research people are like oh well, could it be this and you're like it could I have thought about that <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah like, it's, my research is not going to be like a breakthrough yeah it's such a jumbly relationship and I don't honestly I don't think inflammation might even be the key thing interesting because there's so many reasons why in isolation can impact health and other ways that it can get under the skin and that might be maybe inflammation is on that route but like there's a little bit in between the isolation and the inflammation it's not direct or because isolation affects so many parts of someone's life so you know you're less likely to go and do exercise yeah. 
um, you're less likely to, I think, stick to your like medical routines and you know might take up comfort behaviors that aren't very good for your body like you, you might change your eating habits or take up smoking or you know which yeah. then could impact health information might be involved i think it is maybe a little bit but i'm, I'm not expecting to, to find this this is the solution this is you know we must give isolated people anti-inflammatories and they will be fine <laughs> like, i don't think that's the case so complicated it's more about because i remember at the start i was thinking i will identify independent pathways between the social thing and this biological thing and now I'm like there could this is all just going to be contributing to an overall outcome and there's going to yeah. be because I'm not going to find one single causal direct independent pathway because that's not the way the world really works as opposed yeah. to biological and social affairs they don't function like that and that's a yeah. challenge isn't it it's understanding the nuance whilst also applying that kind of statistic like there's even, there's so many more biological processes as well that it could be like I'm picking one which is inflammation but you know I'm our bodies have infinite like so many things going on at all times and there's so many different ways in which behaviors and interactions or whatever we are doing can then be somehow mirrored in our body from whatever system these biomarkers that we use a lot might just be indicators of other processes that are actually the you know the mechanism that we have yeah not picking up in big data sets because we just have these set markers that are easy to measure yeah exactly that's the thing from our i guess perspective we're doing it in big observed often data sets like big studies and you know there's probably the other side of biosocial where you could be in a lab and you can really be getting to the nitty-gritty of the bio but yeah it's just not possible to kind of take that point of view from the yeah. methods and the way that we approach it i'd be interested to see there's more bio biosocial going on but i think it, it's, it's, it'd be so hard to do um i think as well all kind of contributing to the general you know that's the thing there's so many research scientists around the world all in different areas all just putting a little bit in and we'll get there one day maybe <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like it's it's all just tiny little building blocks yeah so what is your favorite finding so far <laughs> with a phd you imagine you'll have findings all the time and then you just you just kind of don't you just sort of no. <laughs> yeah no i had to think about this one <laughs> i was pleasantly surprised when i generated my measure of kind of healthy aging with how many people were like doing great Aww. um i mean maybe because they're a bit kind of younger like 60 isn't really old for the type of measures I'm taking you, you kind of I think you probably expect kind of most people to be able to walk however many meters it is or have okay grip strength so it made me happy to see how many people were like doing pretty good yeah. um, on all those things and then it's been really interesting so as part of like my validation to make sure that my measure of healthy aging is good and useful. I've been like predicting um, later health outcomes with it. So seeing if the score can predict mortality or um, I've also done see seeing if it can predict someone's well-being in the future and it can so it was pretty good at predicting mortality whether like whether someone died I think it was 14 years after measurement which is pretty good and also um, someone's quality of life in the future so there's like it's not, nothing like too juicy but it was they're little like promising things which kind of keep your spirits up when you've been just hating this thing for 
ages. Yes. Um, <laughs> One second of going, oh, yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll get to the juicy things. You will. And I think that they're good indicators, aren't they? And I think you've done so much thinking through everything that by the time you do get to that point, the rest of it will sort of fall in and it'll be really good. Yeah. It's be weird kind of having like really interesting results but having no idea as to why you've got them or what to say about them. Yeah. I mean, we might have that too, but yeah, let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like your your work has really obvious implications for the real world. I mean, you said before we're not going to be putting, you know, isolated people on anti-inflammatory medication, mm. but you do kind of have that. Yeah, and people can quite easily kind of, especially nowadays, past year, can easily kind of put themselves in that position that, yeah, isolation is kind of bad. Before the pandemic, there was a lot of focus on particularly loneliness, which is related to but slightly different to isolation. I don't know if it's a minister for loneliness, but there's someone been appointed by the government. It's promising. I'm not sure how much kind of has gone on, but it's good that it's becoming a thing that most that we're aware of. Um, and are trying to counteract the effects of it. So my work kind of feeds into that big body of evidence about how isolation is harmful to people. I think we should know why, you know, that's like the key of science. We all want to know why things are happening. And as well, because it's biosocial, I think it does add like another nice layer of evidence that linking that biology into it, I think really hammers home the point, like how harmful it is and I think maybe from a, I don't know, a policy perspective, having that biology element is kind of shocking in some way. Like I think people take sort of biology quite seriously, um, maybe more seriously than if you're like, it makes you feel sad. I don't know. Definitely. You've broken your leg, you take all this time off work, but like you're depressed and it's like, mm, well, you know, and, and instead being like, why is it that if it's biological processes, like we're going to trust that more almost? Yeah, yeah. It's more real if we can measure this impact biologically. You can see isolated and lonely people being ill and having poor health outcomes, but I guess if you don't really know why... Yeah, it's harder to sort of process as something that you can take action on. And um, so maybe having having that like biology element um, adds a little bit into the into the evidence. It's really interesting. So me and Charlotte started at the same time. What would you kind of say to yourself then or what do you wish you'd known? Um, but I was just trying to think back to what I thought before the PhD and it was so long ago I'm like a whole other person yeah it was quite strange going because I worked for a bit before starting the PhD so I don't know if I came into it with a different mindset I, I definitely kind of wasn't in that student mindset I hadn't been a student for a few years um, I was used to working personally for me and lots of people won't feel this way but I kind of wish I knew a bit more about my own like a working preferences and habits which I think would have been maybe helpful to understand what it would have looked like to do a PhD and maybe set up things that would help but I never realized how much I valued having like a boss and a collaborative working team and like structured work day which not to say that you kind of don't have on a PhD but it's not the same as like having a, an actual job kind of you're the only person who's chasing yourself up yeah like you have a supervisor but they're not your shift manager on you or anything you know they are there to guide you but it's an independent working project which is really it's an amazing thing to do um it's, it is a great experience to 
learn how to learn independently and like develop all your skills and but I do think I was maybe like happier working as part of a team with a boss and having that structure really defined this is what we do today this is what yes we do today. exactly this is what your job looks like and what we're going to achieve and this is what it's going to be the team boss relationship and that structure in your work day was helpful for me to like stay focused because you can just get so easily lost yeah. um, in your own time in your own head yeah I probably did know this about myself but I didn't think about it before I started really and that it would have quite quite a profound effect on like how I feel about doing a PhD like my day-to-day work life so I kind of wish I'd known to I guess think about that a bit more um, and and just kind of be honest with myself about what I needed kind of stay in a good mindset. I think it's interesting Without that set structure and that really clearly defined goals and that kind of the external motivation, you're dependent on your internal motivation, which I think can really quickly just turn into guilt. You know, like, why can't I manage my own time? And you kind of fall into these traps. And I think saying about managing that expectation and knowing yourself a little bit better so you don't put that pressure on and turn it into quite a negative headspace. Yeah, I completely agree. That sort of going in knowing part of the hardest thing about this is that managing my time and that you know, keeping yeah. sort of motivation and the end goal in mind yeah you think you go in and you think the hardest thing is going to be like some analysis you're going to do in your third year but the biggest challenge is like <laughs> managing yourself um through the three years and like trying to stay on top of all these yeah like quite negative like thoughts and feelings and patterns that become kind of like a default it's just so easy to slip into feeling guilty comparing yourself to others and wondering I think probably because a PhD attracts maybe a type of person that's quite kind of um (laughs) into doing well and worrying about if they're doing the right thing and not great but I always find it interesting when when you say you're doing a PhD and people are like oh you must be so clever and it's like no I'm just obsessed with external validation (laughs) (laughs) at the end of this I won't be any more clever in fact I'll probably be more stupid but it's more that I'll be very resilient and very like those kind of psychological things that are the real battle that you just don't really anticipate say like we do have a lot of support I felt and I think being part of a training program it's been nice having a peer group and the kind of support that comes through that but it's still that is the biggest challenge I think exactly even if you get to even if you do compare yourself to others it's still nice to have others You probably have that regardless anyway, because there's always PhD students around. But with a cohort, you feel that, but then you actually know the people and you know that they're also feeling the same thing. You know, you know them well enough to be like, okay, actually, everyone feels like this and everyone's doing just fine. So, and you kind of learn as well. It's it's funny, like, you start to really, really, not that I ever didn't, but really enjoy other people's successes too. Like, there's that niggling kind of comparison, and it's also like, that's awesome, you've done that. Everyone is always on a different path as well at any point in life but I think it's quite clear with PhDs people are doing them for different reasons they want a different end goal and like career and so you know comparing yourself to everyone on the course would be futile because everyone is doing different things for different reasons and because they want to be doing something different like people want to be academics people want to communicate science people want to go into policy or charity whatever so yeah comparing yourself to everyone's journey would just you would you wouldn't do a PhD you just spend your whole time doing that yeah. <laughs>
So I guess our advice for, we're on the same tune here, aren't we? Our advice for like other PhD students or for prospective students, both definitely saying, do not compare yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult advice because you, you just do it automatically. But I think knowing that you're going to do it automatically, but also that yeah. it's kind of silly because it doesn't really mean anything. Um, it is helpful when you get stuck in that yeah that rut <laughs> yeah yeah in that rut make sure you've got the support yes one of my biggest advice kind of I guess for more prospective students picking out a supervisor I think it's quite important that you kind of match on some fundamental things and expectations so you know expectations of workload your working style time commitments how you want that relationship to be you know some people will want to be checked up on all the time and as well like pressures so some supervisors will be like really keen for publications all the time some won't have that focus and either's fine but you need to kind of match you with them and I think it's tricky because it's something that's when you don't know because you're starting you don't yeah. know what level level you want you know it's often sort of seen as like pressure and support and mm-hmm. sometimes high pressure is great when you've also got some high support other times you, you want neither and I've found throughout my PhD there's times when I actually really I've, I've really enjoyed just being on, off on my own in my head another time yeah. that kind of help me <laughs> yeah exactly and there isn't really a way to get around that because you you don't know this and you're trying to figure them out you know maybe in a couple of meetings is kind of impossible so is there anything else that you want the world to know about biosocial research <laughs> <laughs> nothing crazy I I mean we've spoken about this before probably the same in other like interdisciplinary research but you sometimes feel like you're a bit in the middle of disciplines and like you don't have a home per se like you definitely do but sometimes you can feel just a little bit maybe on the outskirts of your discipline or a little bit confused about what your discipline is I think I'm a social epidemiologist now but it's taken me quite a long time to sort of put that label on myself and like feel like okay is this a group I belong in you know we all have a sense of belonging um (laughs) so but it's quite I think it's quite difficult to figure out where you know sometimes where you belong and what title you want to give yourself especially if your interdisciplinary background as well like my background is nothing like what I'm doing now so I can't take that title so yeah a bit of an identity crisis and there's I think as well there's like a sort of a structure and like basis to being part of a discipline that is maybe helpful in your work that you don't necessarily have if you're not sort of solidly in one place so theoretical basic knowledge that you know every biologist will have or you know style of publishing and things which sometimes you can be a bit which I find I think it's interesting to span this and have that identity crisis I think I mean I think it's kind of cool I suppose (laughs) I've always thought really interesting things happen when you kind of combine different ideas and you have to go so far down into well-trodden route to find something novel or something really intriguing because it's quite cool when you mix them together and you're like yes I'm on a bit of a weird path here and I'm having to think about all these things at the same time but it is just quite fun yeah exactly there's way 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 more pluses to it than yeah than negatives <laughs> well, I think probably on that note because it's such a positive note to end on yeah I'll say thank you very much Charlie. thanks for having me and thank you for listening I hope you've enjoyed this episode next week I'll be talking to Olivia Grant about pollution and the epigenome So please do subscribe and you can follow the Biosocial pod on Twitter. (laughs) Amazing. Right.